Hey there, it's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So are you happy with the state of the world? (laughs) Do you wish that things could change? Do you want the world to improve? Would you like to do something to fix the world? Well, if so... Guess what? In today's study of Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 13, we're going to discover Paul's solution for how to fix the world. It's a shocking, sort of challenging proposal, but it is the plan that God has put in place since the beginning of time, and it is the only plan that God has. It's plan A, and there is no plan B. That's what we'll be looking at today in our study of Ephesians 3, 8 through 13. But before we do that, we want to listen to, or we had a a question from a reader. There's a letter in your mailbox. So uh, the question from the reader today is from a new member of the discipleship group named John Reddick. And uh, he sent in a question. Now, John, I want to let you know, if you're listening to this, uh, I tried to respond by email but for some reason, I couldn't. Your emails kept bouncing back to me. I'm not sure why that happened. So if you're hearing this, um, maybe send me another email or something, because uh, the one you sent me or the one I have for you, for some reason, doesn't work. Anyway, here's the question that John sent in. What is your analysis of Pentecostalism? How should the Azusa Street Revival and movement be assessed and interpreted? Okay, well, bottom line is I'm not really a fan of Pentecostalism. Now, don't get me wrong, I do like Pentecostals. Uh, I know many, and I'm friends with many. I, I love their passion for Jesus. I love the desire to see God move in their life in a meaningful and powerful way. I think we all want this. I want this. I imagine you want this. Um, I, I love how Pentecostals are calling for people to have a real experience with God. Lots of Christians, their, their experience with God, their relationship with God, is it's just real dead and emotionless, and Pentecostals are calling for a correction to that. Uh, And that's a very good thing. I'm in favor of that. Okay, the thing is, though, there's a danger in uh, Pentecostalism, specifically in some of the foundational ideas, uh, the the foundational theology that many Pentecostals have. Now, before I get into that, I'm not going to say much about the Azusa Street revivals or some of the subsequent revivals that have occurred in the last 100, 150 years or so, except to say that these revivals um, did happen, okay? and, and, and as with any historical revival, there are good things and some bad things that came from them. Okay? Now, having said that, I would argue that the worst thing we can do with any revival, any historical experience of a great movement of God in, in the church— is when we try to copy it or replicate it today. Uh, if, when we try to emulate or copy or duplicate some past historical movement of God, we, what, what ends up happening is we introduce religion that, that the movement was originally trying to get rid of in the first place. And especially we end up missing out any new movement of God that try, God is trying to do in our own day. Okay, and I sometimes find that that's what Pentecostals do. Oh, here's what happened during the Azusa Street Revivals. This is what we need to do today. Oh, here's what happened in Acts chapter 2. We need to do the same thing today. Uh, and that's that's dangerous. 
Okay. Uh, now, one of the things that came out of, and one of the reasons for some of the Pentecostal movement is there's there's some Christians in Christianity, modern and historical, who believe that only certain spiritual gifts are in use today. Uh, the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts are no longer in use. That's what many believe and teach. And the Pentecostal movement sort of is a reaction to that, saying, no, all the spiritual gifts are unused today. And uh, that's my view. I do believe all the spiritual gifts are in use today. And so in that sense, I, I agree with the Pentecostal movement about that, that particular point. And in fact, I, I do write about this to some degree in my book, What Are the Spiritual Gifts? There's also a, uh, a, a class, an online course related to the book, which is available for members of my discipleship group. So uh, John, if you're listening to this, <laughs> you're you're a part of the discipleship group, so make sure you take that course. Uh, what are the spiritual gifts? Um, and uh, so I agree with the Pentecostals on that. However, I think that uh, the the danger to this is that some people place their personal experience or their personal desire to see the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in their life, you know, through through miracles and dreams and visions and speaking in tongues and all that sort of thing. They place those experiences as a higher degree of authority than the clear revelation we have in Scripture. And I talked about this briefly in our previous study in relation to some people's visions of hell, and sort of the same concept applies here. It's quite dangerous whenever we place anything above the written revelation of God in Scripture, especially when uh, applied and translated and understood through the lens of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, this is not to say that I am denying the validity of the experience of the Pentecostal people or people who are in the Assemblies of God or some of these other movements that follow the Pentecostal tradition. Um, the thing is, is these ecstatic experiences that they have, dreams and visions and speaking in tongues and all those sorts of things, healings, all those sorts of things, okay? Uh, those those experiences are not exclusive to Christianity. Lots of people do not realize this, but when uh, similar to what I was talking about last time in our in the discussion about visions of hell, lots of other religions have these ecstatic experiences where they have dreams and visions and and out of the body experiences and they see things and angelic beings and they they, they speak in other languages and okay healing and all these sorts of things. That is not exclusive to Christianity. And if we're going to say that Christianity is true, or what I believe is true, because I have these experiences, these dreams, these visions, speaking in other languages, things like that, well then what are we going to say about people of other religions who have similar experiences, nearly identical experiences? Okay, if Christian ecstatic experiences prove that what we believe is true— then what do the similar ecstatic experiences of non-Christians say about what they believe? Okay, and so that also is a problem with sort of how some Pentecostals approach. Well, my Christianity is true because of my experience. Well, okay, then what about the experiences of those people over there who are not Christians? Okay, and so it, it again creates this dangerous sort of situation where since we're not founding our beliefs— and our behaviors upon the clear written revelation in Scripture, but rather on personal experience, now we have no basis upon which to stand when we're saying that Jesus is the only way, as Scripture teaches. 
Okay, so the bottom line is, look, I love Pentecostal people, uh, lots of assemblies of God, very good friends of mine, and lots of good things have come out of this that have been helpful and correctful for the Christian movement. My only real concern with Pentecostals, uh, Pentecostalism, I should say, is this emphasis, this tendency to place more authority on their personal experiences, on the visions and dreams and the healings and the miraculous signs and wonders and so on, the feelings, the, the, the tingles, the goosebumps, those sorts of things uh, that, they, that they experience rather than on the written revelation of Scripture. Okay, so, so, so that's my main, my main concern. I'm not going to divide with them. I'm not, definitely not going to say they're not Christians, anything like that. That's just ridiculous. Okay, uh, but, but we do need to have some concerns and be careful about it. Of course, I would go the opposite approach as well. People who are denying all the use of the, of the spiritual gifts and want no experience of God, nothing of the miraculous, nothing of the divine, nothing of the supernatural, that's a great danger in and of itself also. Okay, and almost denying the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. That also is dangerous, and we need to be careful about that. So anyway, John, I hopefully that answered this question a little bit, and I really hope you hear this, because currently I have no way of getting in contact with you, but if you do hear this, feel free to uh, send me another email so that I have one that works for you. Okay, and thanks for joining the Discipleship Group this week, by the way. If you're listening to this and you're not part of the Discipleship Group, uh, you can do that just by going to redeeminggod.com and clicking the link at the top that says Discipleship Group. Okay, so uh, let's get on to our study then of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. All right, so Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 13, is a continuation of Paul's point that he began in Ephesians 3, 1 through 7 which is what we studied last time. And of course, this whole section, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, is a follow-up on everything Paul wrote in Ephesians 2. This is not some aside parentheses by Paul, which really has nothing to do with what he wrote before. Lots of people think that about this, this section of Ephesians, but that's simply because they do not understand Paul's overall thought flow, his process, what he's thinking and saying and teaching. And uh, so this fits in perfectly with the overall context. In Ephesians 1, Paul talked about all our riches and inheritance we have in Jesus Christ so that we can do what God wants us to do. In Ephesians 2, uh, Paul has been talking about one of the main things God wants us to do, which is to live at peace with one another so that we can show the world how they can live at peace. And in Ephesians chapter 2, right in the middle there, in verses 4 through 10, Paul said, this is what Jesus showed us how to do. He died on the cross for us. Rather than uh, exacting revenge upon his enemies, those who wanted to kill him, and in fact did kill him, Jesus died for them. Okay, and so in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians, hey, you should live this way also. Jesus has broken down all of the dividing walls of hostility, all the cultural and religious barriers that kept us apart. We now can love and forgive and be at peace with one another, be at peace with those people who used to be our enemies. Okay, now obviously, this is easier said than done. Think about someone that you don't like, some enemy you might have. How easy is it going to be for you to live at peace with them? 
So Paul, in Ephesians 1, uh, 3, verses 1 through 13, is showing the Ephesian Christians that he himself is an example to them of how to do this. Paul's in prison. He's writing this from prison, and he chose peace rather than violence. When he was arrested, when he was falsely accused, just like Jesus, he chose to stay in prison as an apostle of Jesus Christ in prison and preach to proclaim the gospel to the Roman soldiers who were his guards and ultimately, eventually, hopefully, proclaim the gospel even to Caesar in Rome. Okay, and so Paul is saying in this section, look, Jesus was our example. I know it's difficult, so now here's how it's working out in me. I am your example, and therefore, now you have these examples in Jesus and in me. You, Ephesian Christians, you can live similarly in your own life. Okay, there's cost to it. Jesus died. Paul's in prison. There's going to be cost to following this way of life, but uh, here, this is what Jesus wants us to do. Okay, now this is just the point that Paul is continuing to make in Ephesians 3, 8 through 13. And the ultimate point here is going to be that as we live this way, as we follow the example of Jesus, as we follow the example of Paul, we will be an example to the world. Jesus is the example to us. Paul was an example to us. We are an example to the world. And when the world sees our example— of how to live in peace with our enemies, how to live at peace with those that we used to hate, they will learn from us about how they can live in peace in this world as well. Okay? So that's where Paul is headed. That's what he's been talking about. And we're looking at the final uh, verses of this point that Paul is making, starting in verse 8. He says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. Let's stop there. Uh, Paul says he's a minister. This is back in verse 7. He's a minister. He was a servant. A, a, remember, a deacon, in a sense. Uh, and here he says he's the least of all the saints. Uh, he, he, he's small, unimportant, insignificant. That's what Paul is saying. I doubt any of us would describe Paul that way, but that's how he views himself. Uh, as less than the least of all the saints. Okay, now he's not just speaking here with false humility. Uh, Paul really believed this. Remember, over in 1 Timothy 1.15, he calls himself the chief of sinners. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he's the least of all the apostles. Okay, this is not false humility by Paul. Uh, he's not one of those who's proud of his humility. Have you seen those people? I am so humble. You should all follow my example. It's not what, that's not Paul's case. The three most humble people in the world— and how I led the other two to Christ. <laughs> uh, it's a joke a book cover for, for some uh, proud Christian author out there. Three most humble people in the world and how I led the other two to Christ. Okay, look, uh, Paul is saying these things here because he was convinced of how great a sinner he actually was. Remember, he was a murderer. <laughs> he was going around arresting people. He was, he was there when Stephen was stoned to death and was instrumental in having Stephen stoned to death. So he had done much to persecute Christians, to destroy the church, and it was weighing on him. Yes, he understood that he was forgiven, uh, that all of his sins were washed away by the grace of God, but he knew that he didn't deserve it. And so that's why he's referring to himself as the least of all the saints, as the chief of sinners. All right, so 
Um, and I think this is actually true of you and I. Lots of Christians say that as you become more mature in Christ, you will sin less. Okay, I agree with that. That's true. However, sort of the opposite idea is also true, that as you become more mature in Christ, though you sin less, you also become more in tune with how much of a sinner you really are. You become more aware of how given to sin your body is. Sort of think of it as light. When the light is far away from you, you think of a a little, mm, I don't know, campfire on a hill, miles and miles away. You can see it there. If you look down at yourself, everything's still in darkness. As you get closer to the light, uh, as you get closer to the light of God's revelation, to the light that is God, more and more of your defects are revealed until you're standing before the spotlight of God's perfect righteousness and holiness, and now all of your sins are revealed. All, all of your defects and, and the ways you've fallen short of the glory of God are made evident to you. That's what's going on with Paul. He's not still this horrible sinner. He's not going around committing sin to the degree that he used to. However, because he's so close to God, he is more aware of his sin than ever before, and that's why he's speaking the way he is. And that's what happens to you and I as well. Okay, This is one of the reasons, by the way, that we can never, ever, ever look to our own righteousness, our own good works, our own behavior as a way to determine whether or not we truly have eternal life, as a way to to gain assurance of eternal life. Okay, Why? Because the closer you get to God, the more aware of your sin you are. And if you're looking to your sin or lack thereof as evidence for whether or not you have eternal life, well... The closer you get to God, the more convinced you are that you are not close to God because of all the sin that is evident in your life. It's, it really is self-defeating. So it's so much better to recognize that all of our sins are taken care of by the grace of God. We're fully forgiven, and our eternal life has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with our righteousness or lack thereof. Okay, that is going to allow you to mature and grow in your relationship with God. Okay, That's what Paul is talking about here. And he is, uh, he, he's convinced, he is certain that he is the least of all the saints. And um, that, that's, that's what he's talking about here. And he's t- saying that to him, this, this grace was given. That what grace? This, this grace of the mystery that Paul was supposed to proclaim to the world. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about in the rest of verse 8 and on into verse 9. He says that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Now, I personally think that these verses 8 and 9 are a perfect summary of Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. Okay, remember, what is chapter 1 about? The unsearchable riches of Christ, our inheritance, everything we have been given in Jesus Christ. And what is Ephesians chapter 2 about? Well, how God has taken these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, who normally hated each other, were in violence in each other, wanted to kill and destroy one another, and brought them together in fellowship into one body, the church, through Jesus Christ. That's the fellowship of the mystery. A beautiful summary here of Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. And the fact that these are unsearchable riches of Christ— 
means that they cannot ever be adequately explained or understood. They're beyond finding out. They're infinite, okay? You cannot fully explore them. You cannot delineate them. They are beyond description, beyond enumeration. You just think about some of the blessings and riches and inheritance you have in Jesus Christ, and you start listing them. You can never stop listing them because they are infinite. They're unsearchable. I like sometimes like to think about that the riches of Christ are like the waves of the ocean, or maybe leaves of the trees of the world. Well, how many waves of the ocean are there? Well, technically, uh, infinite. Oh, sure, there's a limit, I suppose, based on when the world was created and the world will be destroyed. That's an, that, that does give it a finite number to degree. But you think of all the waves that are continually blowing up on the shore of all the oceans in the world, it's an infinite number. Same with leaves of the trees, because they keep growing. It's an infinite number. That's the way it is with the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. They are unsearchable. Okay, and then this concept of the fellowship of the mystery. What is this fellowship of the mystery? We've talked repeatedly about the the mystery that Paul is talking about here, uh, which is this idea that there are these people groups, Jews and Gentiles, and in ages past, the Jewish people thought that they were the, the, the inside. They were on the inner group with God, and everybody else was outside. There was us versus them, insiders and outsiders, people whom God loved and those who, well, God sort of tolerated them. But uh, in fact, some of the more extreme views of Judaism said that God only made uh, Gentiles to, to uh, uh, give, give uh, help, help of the, the flames of hell burn. <laughs> okay, uh, pretty drastic view there. Uh, but now the, the mystery is that that's not true, that, 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 that all people are in with God. All people are on the inside. All people are welcomed. And uh, that's what Paul's talking about there in verse, verse 9. In fact, just the end of verse 9, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that, look, God has known this. It was from the beginning. This is not something new that God just came up with. When Jesus came, no, this has been from the very beginning, in the ages. It's been hidden in God. Uh, the apostles and prophets wrote about this in the Old Testament, and in the, 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 the apostles have been teaching about this based on what they've seen in Jesus. Okay, And most people, nevertheless, still did not understand it, still did not recognize it. It was a mystery to them. Uh, but it wasn't something that is new from God. Uh, it, it was hidden in God. Meaning we didn't know it, but God knew it, and God has been planning it from creation. Okay? And the mystery is, again, this concept, this idea that the Jews and Gentiles are now one, now accepted. They're on equal footing, equal ground with God. Okay? And this mystery ultimately finds its fulfillment in the church. There's no longer Jews and Gentiles. All one. One people. The church. And in the church, this mystery has been made known. And Paul is saying that he has become an apostle, a messenger of this mystery. He received it from God through the revelation of Jesus Christ, and now he is making it known to the rest of the world. And here we get to the ultimate point in verses 10 and 11. Why? Why did God create the church? Why is there this mystery of God uniting Jews and Gentiles who were at animosity with each other, who hated each other, who, who, who uh, 
were violent with each other. Why did God create the church? Verses 10 and 11, to the intent, all right, intent is the purpose here, or the purpose of, okay, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. All right, what is Paul talking about? All right, first, let's discuss this concept of principalities and powers. A lot of people think that these terms, principalities and powers, refers to angels and demons. And I myself have taught that in the past, but in recent years, I have realized that that is not true. When you discover this, or when you uh, study this term, principalities and powers, uh, in Scripture, and it's used multiple places right here in Ephesians. We've already looked at them a couple times in Ephesians 1.21, and then here in 3.7, we'll see them again in more detail in Ephesians chapter 6, when we look at the armor of God section, the spiritual warfare section, Ephesians 6.12. Okay, well, we, we discover that these terms, principalities and powers, are not referring to fallen angels or demons or anything like that, but instead are ways of referring to the powers that run this world. We could think of political powers. These are earthly rulers, kings, princes, things like that. Uh, and not just rulers, but sort of institutions as well. Uh, nations and governments and economic powers, educational powers, medical, scientific powers, Okay, and, and these are the things that run and dominate and rule this world. And God created all those things for good, but they are rogue. Okay? They have gone against what God intended for their, for, for their purpose to be. They are supposed to serve this world and help the people of this world, but they, they do the exact opposite. Uh, the powers of this world, economic powers, the, the, the governmental powers, even rulers and authorities, uh, business executives, all of these powers seek to use the power they have, why? Most of the time, to enrich themselves, to gain more power, to dominate and control the people that they are supposed to serve, to, to in some extreme cases, bring tyranny upon this world. They're doing the exact opposite of what God wanted. Uh, we see these powers at work right now, almost everywhere, uh, as those in power seek to use their positions to enrich themselves and to gain uh, authority and power and dominance over everybody else. All right? There's lies everywhere, all for the purpose of enriching a few people at the top and gaining more power for themselves so they can use that power to gain more power for themselves. They're never, they're never, never done. They're always trying to get more problem or more power. Now, this is not a new problem. This has been going on since the foundation from the beginning of the world, ever since uh, the first city and the first government. Uh, it's always been a problem. Okay, and that's why Paul was writing about it in his day. The main power uh, structure in his day was the Roman Empire. It was military power, uh, they, through taxation, it was a financial economic power, their education system, and all of the gods and goddesses and religions and so on were religious powers. And they were all working together to control and dominate the people, the citizens, and even the slaves of the Roman empires, all working together for that purpose. Christians, of course, 
We serve a different power. We serve the greatest power, God. And of course, as a servant of God, we want freedom. We want liberty. We want peace. Those are the things that we value as members of of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, but of course, we've always wondered what we can do about it. How can we bring peace to a world that is ruled and dominated by powerful forces through through greed and violence that just want to enrich themselves and gain more power for themselves? Well, guess what? Paul is providing that answer to the Ephesian readers here in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is saying that the mystery of the gospel, which is that God brought these two warring people groups, the Jews and Gentiles, together into one body of the church so that they can live in peace with one another. Paul is saying that mystery of the gospel directly challenges the powers of this world, the principalities and powers of this world. And in fact, it seeks to correct their abuses and teach them, show them a different and better way to live. In other words, let me put it more bluntly. The church, that's the mystery, the church is God's solution to the problem of abusive earthly powers. Yes, abusive earthly powers are a problem. What has God done to fix it? He created the church. Why does the church exist? Why did God unite Jews and Gentiles into one body in Jesus Christ? The reason, according to what Paul writes here in Ephesians 3.10, is to teach and correct the principalities and powers of this world so that they can learn from us and find their rightful place in this world, okay, of, as servants to the people, so that they can work to bring peace and justice to this world, rather than... Uh, violence and cruelty and imbalance and greed and lust and all those other things that they they operate by. Okay, and this isn't a new plan. Again, we've talked about this before. Ephesians 3.11, this has always been God's plan. It's the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And um, this means, of course, again, the church is not a new aspect of God's plan. It's what God has always intended, always purposed. On God's list of priorities, the church has always been number one. God's reason for creating the universe was to create the church. It's the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. And now the church has been brought into existence in order to teach the world how to behave. And here's here's where the rubber meets the road now. When we look around at the world... And we say, why is the world falling apart? Why is the world so evil? Why doesn't God do something to fix the world? How come there's so many problems and evil people in the world? How come the governments don't work to serve the people? How come there's war and violence and bloodshed and misery and theft and lying and deceit? All these problems with the world. You want to know what God says to that? God says, I did do something. I created the church. How come you all are sitting on your hands and doing nothing? (laughs) You're my plan. (laughs) That's why I made you. When we see problems with the world, guess whose fault it is? It's not their fault. It's our fault. When the world is falling apart, it's because the church is doing a poor job of showing the world how to live. In fact, maybe we could put it more bluntly. 
When the world is falling apart, it's likely because the world is following the poor example of the church about how to live. When the church is fighting with each other, backstabbing, blaming, accusing, and engaging in, you know, even verbal violence with each other, the world says, well, hey, (laughs) if that's how God's people operate, that must be the way to do it. And of course, they take it to an extreme in a sense. Okay, so, so, so the world's problems begin as the church's problems, and then the church doesn't fix the world because the church doesn't fix the church. And so we are here to create the world, uh, tell, to show the world how to behave. Anyway, that's Paul's point as he finishes out this idea, verses 12 through 13. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. This is just saying, Paul is saying, look, I know it's difficult. I know it's challenging to think that we are responsible for how the world behaves, that uh, the world looks to our cues for how it's supposed to operate. The principalities and powers are learning from us. But look, you want to change the world? Well, Jesus gave us the example. And if you want to follow his example, well, guess what? You have boldness and access. You have confidence through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is leading the way. Jesus has led the way. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. And all we need to do now is follow him. That's discipleship. Follow his example. Paul followed the example of Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about here. And so should we. And uh, by the way, that's what Paul is going to talk about in verses uh, 14 through the end of the chapter. Okay, Our perfect example is Jesus. Uh, And we have all the riches and power of Jesus, Ephesians 1, so we can follow Jesus with boldness. And uh, that is, again, just to round out the point, what Paul says in verse 13. He says, Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Remember, when we, when we began this study of this section of Ephesians, back in verse 1, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul talked about how he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, that might be a troubling thought for his Ephesian Christians. So, basically, Paul here has spent several verses saying, no, don't worry about that. I'm here for your glory. I'm here as an example to you of how to follow the example of Jesus. And yes, you might end up dead like Jesus. You might end up in prison like me. But this is the proper way to live. And this is not a bad way to live. This is not... Uh, If you end up dead or in prison, this doesn't mean that God has turned his back on you. This may be exactly what God wants. Why? Because he's showing the world a different way to live, a better way to live, a way that is nonviolent. All right? And so so Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians, look, don't lose heart in my tribulations, my trials, my troubles. They're for your glory. Yes, I'm a prisoner, Paul says. But I'm a prisoner because I did what God wanted me to do. Namely, share the gospel with you, and now with the Roman soldiers, and ultimately, hopefully, with Caesar in Rome. And maybe these powers, these principalities and powers, this Roman government might learn something from Paul and his example of how to live and operate in this world. All right? Look, all of us who follow Jesus, we want the world to change for the better. Uh, I do. I I assume you do as well, right? thing is, the reason so little change occurs is because we don't realize, we don't understand how to change the world. Oh yeah, we think, well, I voted. (laughs) And you should vote, okay? Some pastors out there that say, don't vote. Look, vote. 
Uh, don't think that voting really accomplishes anything, though. It does a little bit of something, a tiny little thing, but it's not enough. It's not going to change the world, especially with how most politicians are just so corrupt themselves. Okay, okay well, I'll write letters to Congress. Eh, okay, <clears throat> knock yourself out. Make phone calls, letters to the editor, picket, I don't know, boycott businesses. I don't know if anything's going to really do anything. Okay, support businesses and causes you believe in, donate money. Okay, fine, if you want to. According to Paul, the best way to fix the problems of the world is follow the example of Jesus, follow the example of Paul. How? What does that look like? By living in peace with one another. Giving an example to the world how peace can be achieved with each other. We Christians spend so much time stabbing each other in the back and gossiping about each other and name-calling, all these sorts of things. No wonder the world is in such a mess because we're the example of how to live. Now, Jesus is the example to us. Paul was an example to the Ephesian Christians. And now we are to follow in their example and live in peace with one another so that the principalities and powers of this world can look at our example and hopefully learn something from us on how this world is supposed to operate and how this world works. Okay, And, and, and in fact, that's exactly what Paul goes on to talk about in the rest of Ephesians chapter 3, this call. He makes a call in the rest of Ephesians chapter 3 to live in peace and unity with each other. Okay, Paul, Jesus was our example. Paul was our example. Uh, and now here, we are to be an example of peace and unity to the rest of the world. That's what Paul discusses for the rest of Ephesians chapter 3. And that's where we will pick up next time with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Hey, thank you so much for listening today. I hope this study has been helpful to you and beneficial. Uh, and you're learning to see how to fix the world. Lots of problems in this world today, but now you're beginning to see how important it is, how central the church is to God's plan for fixing this world. We're plan one, plan A. There is no plan B, and you are central to that. Join me next time as we pick back up in Ephesians 3.14. Thanks again. We'll talk to you then.